Helping people build ambitious and satisfying careers, businesses, and lives. This is the Influence Ecology Podcast. Now, here is your host, John Patterson. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm your host, John Patterson, the co-founder and CEO of Influence Ecology, the leading business education in transactional competence. Broadcasting from Ventura, California, this podcast features case studies, stories, and lessons from business owners, executives, and entrepreneurs who found real solutions, real results, and real satisfaction not only with work, career, and money, but in every area of life. You'll hear how these ambitious professionals found that those who transact powerfully thrive. In today's episode, we'll hear some clips from our recent mid-year conference. As we teach it, there are four vital components to consider when constructing the environments or transactions that do some heavy lifting for us. These elements are ideas, narratives, objects, and standards. Some transactional behavior archetypes are better suited to provide one of these elements than others. The conference included over 40 subject matter experts who addressed how they amplify their influence in transactions. Reality is the best story wins and the role of the performer personality in particular is to provide the narrative, stories, care, and freedom required for any transaction to be successful. Today, we'll hear from some of the top performer personalities within our ecology, and we invite you to listen to this episode from two different angles. You either are a performer or involved in exchanges with them. As you listen, what can you learn about yourself? What can you learn about transacting with them? Here are some performer personality clips. Legend has it, and what better way to start a story than with the words legend has it. Ernest Hemingway made a bet with a fellow author. Now, the author thought that Ernest Hemingway couldn't create a six-word story that was powerful and meaningful. Of course, Ernest Hemingway nailed it. And I'm not going to share with you his story, but I am going to share with you some of the hundreds of six-word stories or memoirs that were inspired by that legend. And why are we sharing these six-word stories? First of all, because a concise narrative is a powerful one. And second, because story is meant to be shared. What's the worst that could happen? I still do not regret anything. Danced in fields of infinite possibilities. Macular degeneration. Didn't see that coming. And for the judges, no shit, I'm critical. You're flawed. And then one of my favorites of all time, of course, art is not just for walls. I'm Joni Rocco, and I am 100% fat performer. I hail from just outside of Denver, Colorado, and as you can tell from my environment, art truly isn't just for walls. 
My husband and I own a wood floor contracting company, and through our studies with Influence Ecology, our personal and professional lives have truly been impacted, most powerfully through the use of story. And that's why I'm here today. For the purpose of today's talk, my intent is to share with you first the unexpected power of story or narrative. Secondly, the superpower and kryptonite of the storyteller, as we call them here at Influence Ecology, the performer, personality, and transactional behavior. And lastly, how you might consider creating an environment that supports your performer personality and allows them the opportunity to truly thrive. As linguistic, object-oriented social creatures, we don't know how to do without story. You understand from this education and you've heard us say it before, you cannot act a thing until you have articulated it. Story matters, it is an inescapable aspect of human exchange. Story or narrative has started and ended wars, peace treaties, riots, movements, cultures, nations, even our current financial systems are constructed out of stories or narratives that support their survival today. We humans are steeped in narrative. You know that story, you can't see the forest for the trees? Well, my friends, sometimes we can't see the narrative for the current in which it's flowing. While story is something we love as we're expressing and continuing to express in the chat box, um, and it can produce great surplus. Do not, for one minute, be naive to the potential threats and consequence of a powerful narrative. Although intangible, story has strength and performance, and a storyteller's true powers lie in two things. First, shaping our reality and building shared meaning. So how does the best story win? Well, you and I both know that it agitates indifference, usually by producing a substantial breakdown. It targets a specific audience generally suffering with that breakdown. And it presents the only solution to that breakdown by powerfully wielding the weapons or tools of ethical influence. I have the opportunity to provide the context for the performer personality. And yes, we are generally more trouble than we appear. <laughs> we are powerful storytellers because we look outside of ourselves to care for the needs and the concerns of others. We don't just love people. We live people. We breathe people. We check on others to care for others. So that is incredibly important asset as a storyteller because we know how to tell stories so that other people can hear it. So it really resonates with others. However, this care or concern does not mean that we performers are more virtuous than any of the other personalities. As a matter of fact, as Trish Tyler alluded to earlier today, she's a well-trained performer. 
And a well-trained performer will tell you that if performer does not clearly articulate her aims and ethics for each condition of life, she will absorb them from the environment, from the current, from others around her. And that's a very dangerous thing to do. The second asset that a performer has, that superpower, is that we have an innate gift of creating a mood. We do it whether we're one-on-one -on -one or in large groups. We are the weirdos who will learn how to palm read just so that we can draw a crowd at a party. If you have a healthy and satisfied performer on your team who can manage her mood, then you will likely have a great vibe. Because let's face it, the world is not serious and get to work all the time. Sometimes it's silly and ridiculous, just like us. Having said that, there are times where we can overfund. And I just made that a word, I think. But there are times in the transaction where we really do need to be more rigorous. And there are personalities who are more rigorous too. And if they are not in the mood to have fun, then it can sometimes be a challenge and we come across as a little too clowny. Janet Freeland gives a great example of this in her podcast. So listen for that. I appreciated it very much. And the last bit of asset for performer as related to narrative that I'm going to share with you now is that we're powerful storytellers because we can recall the big picture at all times and remind people of it nonstop. And that is a great thing because we campaign for and we remember the brand foundation, the tagline. We can simply set the context in a production email request. And you'll hear some of that from Marika today too. We excel at campaigning for the big picture and reminding people of that environment. However, sometimes people don't love the performer download. It's almost like doing the Macarena. You remember that dance for the hundredth time? Just not good anymore. So try to be concise performers so that that's not looked at as a liability and be patient with us, the rest of you. We constructivist personalities, we've got one foot in the air in possibility land, one foot on the ground in tactics. We move people from intention into commitment and we go from subjective, all things are possible, into, into objective where the work really truly does get done. And in order to do our work, work of intention to commitment, other personalities have got to allow us the freedom to construct the narrative. It's 1671. And it's a cold, bleak day in the middle of London. Can you imagine how cold it is? Christopher Wren, who is probably the world's most famous architect, is walking down a dank alley. He's been commissioned to rebuild St Paul's Cathedral after the Great Fire of London. And he is out observing workers at work. So as he walks down the street, comes across a man and this man looks miserable he's cold he's working slowly he's laying bricks one brick after the time uh, at a time 
Ren says to him, what are you doing? And the man looks up from his work and he says, I'm building a wall. Anyway, so a little depressed, Ren walks a little bit further down the street and he comes across another man. And this man's looking a little bit better. He's kind of, um, you know, focusing on his work and he's, I don't know, um, looking pretty deliberate and he's putting in one brick after the other. And Ren said to him, well, what are you doing? And he said, oh, well, I'm um, earning enough money to feed my family. So a little, a little happier, Ren walks a little bit further down the street. And then he comes across a man who is animated. He's like whistling a little tune. And he's like, just could not look more thrilled. It's still cold. The weather's still the same. Still 17th century London. This man looks beside himself with joy. And Ren says to him, he said, what are you doing? And he goes, oh my goodness, sir, I am building a cathedral. So my point is three men doing the same thing, each with an entirely different narrative about what they're doing. Narrative gives us our full experience of life. And I say that it's the source of results. Go to the next slide, please. Put up all the dot points on this one. Just go right through. Thank you. Uh, my name is Gillian Formenton, and I am talking to you today about the power of narrative. Now, I am a performer, and I have been participating with Influence Ecology now for two and a half years, and it's made a massive difference to my ability to be known in my environments because I'm an engineer. And I've most of my life, I've felt like a bit of a square peg in a round hole. Um, I, um, I, and I work with um, people who are interested in making changes to their organisation. But to start with, imagine, um, you know, we talk about culture a lot. We're culture, um, you know, like people might say, it's the way things are done around here. Um, some people talk about the symbols and signs that kind of inform us about what what goes on in a company. Um, sometimes it's to do with the legacy and what's what's happened before and um, and what people talk about that. It's made up of the gossip. Put simply, you could say that culture is the network of conversations that are had inside that group of people. The narrative. It's what we're saying about things. It's what we're not saying about things. And if you think about it, like what we're having a conversation now, you imagine it like you and I are having a conversation. So that's one conversation. Later today, you'll go and have conversations with other people. And, and I'll go and have conversations with other people. The ones that are really exciting, the ones that really make the biggest difference to the narrative of a whole, of a, of a whole organisation, are the conversations that are happening between other people, the ones that you and I will never even hear happening. We don't even know has happened. But if we want to get interested in really leading an organisation, we need to get really interested in the quality and the quantity of those conversations, the ones that we never hear and the ones that really do run the whole show design and fulfill on the whole narrative of the organization. So this company came to me and they had a problem. Um, 
so we're going to inquire about now about how do you change the narrative within a company now how do you do that and the next slide i have a a, a little quote um which i thought really struck me right so the um i'll just read this right because you can read it for yourselves but with a story you can spark action and inspire people to join you, trust you, to back you, and to do the work of spreading your message about the big changes your organization's making, such as a culture change, a new leader, a rebrand, or even a restructure. Okay, so this company started with a problem. And their problem was they had a culture where, and the way they might have said it was, in fact, the way they did say it was that it was a culture that was tolerant of harsh conversations with each other. Put a little bit more blatantly, um, it was a culture of um, bullying and harassment. This was a company that had moved quite quickly from being at operation, at a, at a construction phase and had gone to an operational phase. And the kinds of conversations that people were having with each other, um, and there were about five or six leaders in the organisation that were getting some complaints, like the company was actually going to government agencies and complaining about these people. And the company was getting ready to remove them and to deal with the impact of replacing those um, very fine, you know, engineers and professionals. And I suggested to them that there was another way of changing the narrative of the business and actually changing it in a way that could be spectacular. And you can see my little cartoon here. Because this is how it occurred to them. I suggested that they could, they could do this without firing anybody. <laughs> so once we've mastered this basic technique, we can try something more challenging like transforming your company culture. And that really is the way that it occurred to them. It would be easier to fly around the office than it would be to do that. But I stuck with it and I'd worked with them for a little while. So there was a tolerance for like a performer presence and they there was some, some trust and faith that I'd be able to do what I was saying. Because what I was saying to them was, if the problem isn't these five or six people that are operating harshly, what if the problem is the narrative in the business? Because if that's the case, taking those six people out, the narrative is gonna survive and those people who were displaying those behaviours will be very quickly replaced by people doing exactly the same thing, maybe even worse. There might be a little correction for a while while people were motivated to feel corrected and, that, and to, to be suppressed a little, but I'd seen it thousands of times where the, the original behaviour, the, the, the narrative is so strong that it will bring it all back. So, I'm, I'm not going to be able to explain to you the whole project, but I'm going to give you kind of the four basic things that it takes to, to do the kind of work that we did. So the first thing is to, is to be able to um, identify the default narrative. It's like a, there's a default narrative that is there for, it's not like we, there's nothing and then you invent something. There's a default. And in this organization, the default was, it's not, it's not safe to speak up. So the next step is you have to find access to being responsible for the past and what got us here. That's the first step. And I've worked with organisations before that haven't been willing for this. And that's been kind of the end of the end of the project, because this is a very important step. 
not like anyone's to blame. It's like if you've got a river flowing into a dam and you and the dam's overflowing, you need to find the source of the water coming into the dam. And then the next step, and I'm saying this in a way that makes it sound really easy, from the top down, coach people to create a new narrative. As John mentioned, my name is Dan Murphy. I am uh, part of the ecology. I'm through MAP. Um, right now I'm in membership. Um, I was introduced a few years ago and um, I am the uh, head of product development at a, at a small software startup called High Marley out of Boston, Massachusetts. And um, I am a performer. We are taught, we, we are drawn to narrative and learning through narrative because we are constantly seeking to grow, to learn how we can overcome the obstacles in our lives that are getting in the way for us meeting the level of satisfaction that we require in all conditions of life. So we're just constantly at work at like, what's in my way and how do I get by that? So if we are driven to meet the unavoidable conditions of life and we are designed to learn in order to overcome the obstacles, then we are susceptible to influence by anything or anyone that can make the connection for me between strategy and tactics to lead strategy and tactics to achieve something of my aims. I'm actually listening for your ability to connect whatever it is you want me to do to help me achieve my aims. And, and so when I'm listening, that's kind of where I'm listening from. So as we start to think about putting this information that I've shared with you to use, um, the first thing I'd say is in our day-to-day -day life, the, the, the most practical way we can think of narrative is, uh, for me anyway, it's to resolve strategy and tactics. It's to resolve, and for those of you who are familiar with the study, as we're moving through presentation to contract, that's how I see it. We're resolving strategy and tactics for everyone else to get their hands around and say, yeah, this is, this is what we are going to do and we're gonna buy into this and we're gonna move. So if you want to be good at this, you better be able to articulate your strategy and tactics in a narrative form. If you wanna make a difference in the world, that's what I would say, right? You need to be able to, you can't just blast off strategy as a bunch of bullet points and blast off tactics as a bunch of bullet points and tell everybody, let's go, let's go and do this. No one will buy into it. You need to, you need to weave the narrative to help everyone to make sense of the world of your strategy and your tactics. So I would suggest that you do this, that you try to tell your, you, you take your strategy and your tactics and you try to build your story around that so that it makes sense. Then you, you, um, Give that strategy or that narrative to whoever it is that you are trying to buy uh, compliance from or you're trying to influence in order to buy some compliance from. And then you start listening like a detective to what they're saying back to you. So I'm going to now reveal this narrative um, about my strategy and my tactics. Now, how is that person uh, receiving that message? The only way you're going to find out is through inquiry. So you want to start asking questions about how are how is this person hearing what you're saying about your strategy and you want to start listening uh for what what's missing um it's it's kind of like the things that are not being said 
Um, so if a guy tells you, you know, if, if somebody, you know, tells you, hey, I play baseball and I was, um, I, I had a great year and I was really wrong to buy all the all-star voting. I didn't get, I didn't get voted. And, but I was the best hitter in the league. I had the most steals, barely made any errors. Yet none of the coaches or players voted for me. And if I'm saying that to, to somebody saying that to me and I start my inquiry, I have to start getting into, well, what else would cause this to happen? And I want to start finding holes. So what aren't you telling me? Well, you're not talking about your relationships with your players or you're not telling me any stories about, you know, teamwork or camaraderie. So maybe there's a hint here. I can start asking you questions about, you know, how you're getting along with these coaches and players that are voting for you. Um, point about this is that like when you when you're trying to um, express to someone any concept or idea and get them to buy into what you're uh, you know trying to influence for compliance, you need to listen to what they're saying in response, and you need to get into a bit of a dance of inquiry to help resolve that. It's and it and it's a little bit like physically positioning someone, right? So imagine you're physically facing a certain direction. You're facing, you know, away, away from the ocean, but I want you to face the ocean. I want you to see this beautiful sunrise or sunset. Um, just like the physical positioning where you can only see it if you're looking in the right direction, listening is the same thing. So when I'm, when I'm having this dance, what I'm really doing is I'm just kind of physically moving you. I'm listening for what you're telling me you're seeing and I'm going, okay, you're, no, you're not looking at it yet. Let's move a little bit more over here. Um, so knowing that the listener is trying to make heads or tails out of what you're saying to them, you, you find this dance by having this conversation about sort of repositioning where they're listening from. Um, another, another thing to consider whenever you're using narrative to gain influence is start with the end in mind and the outcome. I know this is advice a lot of people will probably give, um, but it's so important. And so often I hear people present strategies or present narratives that are just all over the place. They, I have no idea what the outcome is that you're trying to achieve, and clearly you haven't thought this through. And you know, I need to deconstruct this and rebuild it in order to to make sense of it. <clears throat> but this is something that, you know, for everyone, um, start with your outcome, work your way backwards, and make sure that um, the information that you're giving them is sequenced appropriately so that they can consume it in the best way possible. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, right? I'm starting to frame this conversation or this story for you. Once upon a time, there was a little girl, or oh, once upon a time, there lived in a certain village, a, a country girl. All children except one grow up. All of these are famous framings to the beginning of stories. Now, they, they all conjure up images in our minds because we know them and we're familiar with them. I'm sure most of you are thinking when I show this, this slide and this picture about Peter Pan, even though that's not really Peter Pan. Um, it's just the images and the image and the words together will bring that to mind. And I can, we can do that if we're, if we're thoughtful about how we're framing things and how we're tying everything together. So again, it's, it's how humans are interpreting and listening and, and, and hearing what they want to hear. Welcome to this Telling Powerful Stories session. My name is Professor Moira Clay and I live in the beautiful city of Perth, Western Australia with my husband, Paul Harris, and my cat, Mushka. If you haven't guessed it already, I am a performer personality 
and I have been uh, enjoying my journey with influence ecology for about three and a half years now, just about halfway through MAP2. As we've heard in this conference, we are social creatures. We're transactional critters and we live in a world of stories. Whether they be happy stories, like a wedding, which was a very happy story for me, or sad stories, like the story of Abby with brain cancer. I invite you to consider what happens to your biology when you hear or see a happy or sad story. Now, in his book, The Theory of Moral Sentiments, Adam Smith proposed that morality is built into us as human beings, not something we have to calculate. When we see people happy or sad, we feel happy or sad. We derive pleasure when people do things we approve of and distress when we believe they are doing harm. Your brain reacts to stories. Now, just to share this um, story that I haven't shared with many people in this world, so just share it, share, share it amongst us. I'm the last person you want to be sitting next to on a plane. My darling husband has discovered this many times, but you don't want to be with me at 37,000 feet because I react to things. It's around 1993, I was flying home to Australia after three years living in the US in Cincinnati. My visit home was a surprise. My parents hadn't seen me in three years time. It was a long flight and I did as you generally do on a flight, you, I watched a movie. Now, for those of you who, who are my kind of vintage, you may or may not remember a movie called The Mighty Ducks. The Mighty Ducks was about a ragtag bunch of kids brought off the street by Emilio Estevez, uh, who, was there, who coached them to win a grand final in ice hockey. Well, it's fair to say by the end of this movie, I was ugly crying. I was sobbing, in fact. So what happened? I was cognitively intact. I was aware of my surroundings. I was aware of who I was. Yet this story of the Mighty Ducks was so engaging, it caused my brain to react as if I was a character in the movie. The story changed my brain. But how? Now, stories... Uh, American neuroeconomist and neuroscientist, fantastic combination, Paul Zak, has been conducting research on the neuroscience of trust for over 20 years. He's written and spoken extensively on this. Now, Paul Zak, Zak's inquiry has been at the behavioural effect of a neurochemical called oxytocin. Now, don't worry, this is not a science lecture, but some of you may have heard of oxytocin. It's a chemical made in the brain. It's generally associated with birth and breastfeeding. And it exists at a very low level. But Paul Zak discovered that powerful stories cause oxytocin release, which then affects our behaviour. Not, not all stories, not all stories are powerful. It's the stories that create tension, the, the stories that engage you and transport you into the character's world. What happens when you hear a powerful story is it incre increases 
uh, cortisol in your brain, which is the thing that keeps your attention, and it increases oxytocin. And what oxytocin is known for is, is producing empathy. Oxytocin has been called the moral molecule. So this storytelling cocktail of cortisol and oxytocin changes our brain biology when we hear a powerful story producing action. I'm Marika Mirtins. I live in Boulder, Colorado, where I work as an engineer at Western Digital. In November 2018, I spent the day in a windowless conference room with a group of my colleagues, many of whom are here in this room today. I stood alone at the front of the room, facing everyone. And I was in tears. This was day two of our team chartering event, and Alex Gold was leading us through an intense group conversation, orienting each of us to our unique value on the team. It was my turn, and there I stood, confronting my debilitating imposter syndrome. That miserable fear that I'm imminently about to get found out for being a total fraud. It doesn't matter that I've always loved my job, and I've admittedly always been pretty darn good at it. Just never felt like a normal physicist or engineer. Thought I must have tricked the system somehow by getting a master's in nanophotonics by being good at talking with people and organizing study groups. I knew it was only a matter of time before I got found out, and this moment, front of the room, was going to be it. I was sure of it. Now, for Alex's sake, I'll assure you that even though it was a grueling and cathartic hour up there in front of the room, he got me to where I needed to go, and he landed me safely with our wonderful group. So don't worry, he's a master of moving teams through state changes like this. Flash forward only four months later to March 2019, there I was standing in front of the room again. This time in front of 170 engineers for an impromptu cowbell performance. I was imploring them to work together and sync up on a cadence in the same way a cowbell keeps drummers in sync in African music. I admit it was one of my more ridiculous moves and entirely unrehearsed, but we were coming out of a rough week of heavy layoffs, and we were also feeling some growing pain between less than a year into our agile transformation. And I thought, what better way to raise morale than with more cowbell? So what happened in between? What could have caused me to go from being in tears over my fear of inadequacy to an embarrassing display of enthusiasm for teamwork? The answer is, a powerful story. I was introduced with my team to Influence Ecology, and John Patterson led us through a story. Painted the picture of our aim, and then emphasized the inevitability of significant breakdowns in reaching those aims. We didn't include a performer personality type in our transactions. Here is a model in which my personality and skills weren't just pleasant to have around, they were essential. This one paradigm-altering story made me realize that it wasn't a waste of time for me to care as much as I do about people or building narratives or generating buy-in. It was a waste of time for me to be doing anything but that. These days at Western Digital, I'm embracing my performer personality type, 
by leading high-impact initiatives to improve our testing and integration environment so that our firmware meets customer expectations. I help make it possible for hundreds of engineers around the world to work together in the same code base without breaking it. It's magical. Stories have helped me feel a sense of belonging, and they're also a key tool I use to get things done. You may have noticed by now that the way I'm referring to storytelling in this talk isn't quite like telling a fairy tale or recounting an event, though my tips apply to those kinds of stories too. I'm referring specifically to stories in the context of seeding narratives into the environment of your transactions, generate alignment and buy-in. Storytelling is the secret sauce to holding an effective meeting or writing an email that someone actually responds to. Even everyday conversations over the phone or Slack are more effective and more rewarding. Consider them through the lens of storytelling. Storytelling is a tool to seed narratives into the environment. So let's take a step back for a moment and establish what narratives are. I needed a framework, so I asked Alex Bold. As I mentioned at the start, Alex knows me from our work at Western Digital, and he knows that I relate to music analogies because I'm a percussionist. So we talked about how narratives relate to a symphony orchestra. Here's what I took away from that conversation. The orchestra metaphor, the overall narrative of the environment, is the music. Alex likes to say that when the orchestra is really moving as a group and making music, in that moment, the music is moving through the players as if it's the symphony playing them and not the other way around. When that happens, you feel it. You experience it. The group experiences it. That's the narrative coming to life. Before the conductor's baton is raised, the musicians are on stage warming up. Some people are playing scales, some people are practicing the tricky parts of the upcoming piece, others are just fiddling with their instruments. They're not showing up as a team yet. Then the conductor raises her baton, a hush falls over the stage, audience becomes quiet, everyone raises their instruments, and the collective attention is on one thing. They're committed to making music. That's when they become a group. Dr. Signal, they begin. Music is created and the narratives that define and organize the group become manifest. Now, I see narratives as distinct from storytelling. While narratives, as Alex describes them, are an environmental phenomenon, I see storytelling as a tool for marshalling people and seeding those narratives. When we're out there in the real world, playing the role of conductor in real life, storytelling is how we raise the baton with our teams. The tool we have to signal is time to draw our attention together and prepare to act. Now, when I got up to this talk, I thought, what could I really create? And I thought, I'm going to showcase the work that we do at Insane and how we do stop kids from killing themselves and how we engage, I guess, a process that quite align, has alignment with the transaction cycle. So the organization is called Insane. Now, if you look at the logo, um, we've rounded the edges off um, to really kind of stand for no hanging points. And it's a real strong topic that we talk about 
is preventing kids from self-destructing and killing themselves. Now, I'm about to say something pretty radical. None of you are really listening to anything I'm saying. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Now, if I was to ask you, well, what are you really actually listening to? What you're actually listening to is yourself and your judgments and assessments and opinions of everything that you think I'm saying. Like, why is Shane wearing that hat? Or, wow, this is actually pretty interesting. Or, I actually think this guy's a little bit cocky. Whatever's there for you, you're actually listening to your own internal dialogue. And what we created with young people is if we want them to be able to take actions based on their aims, we need to be able to get into their world. If you look at the screen, um, you'll see three boxes. First one says, Shane, I know you want to help me, right? Now, these are the three boxes that we use to make sure that we can get into the young person's vision and understand their story. First one goes, okay, Shane, you're here to help me. Have you actually been where I've been before? Can you actually relate to what it's like to go through my own hardships? And I thought to myself, how can we create this box for all the people that you transact with? So whether you run a service-based business or a pest control business or a wood floor business, you need to make sure that your clients understand how you actually dealt with what we've dealt with before. So with ours, the young person goes, Shane, you know what? You've had your own hardships. I'm going to give you 30 centimetres of my story, just a little bit for you to kind of tick that box. And the second box goes into, Shane, we understand you had your own hardships, but have you ever worked with anyone like me before? And what we want to communicate there to the young person is that, hey, Shane, have you actually met anyone in a similar situation to us? And can you actually please let us know that we're not alone? So what we need to communicate with young people there is, hey, here's 30, 50, 60 other young people who are also dealing with family breakdown, mental health, financial issues. So they go, okay, cool. I can really get that I'm actually not alone and there's other people that you've helped. So I'm going to give you a tick for that box and give you another 30 centimeters of my story. So the last box you can see is saying, can we actually trust you to deliver? And you actually know what the hell you're talking about. Now, what, we're in a, what we want to share there with the young people that we work with, that, you know what, we are a professional in the field and we have developed a strategy that works. And once we tick them three boxes, we know that we've got the young people engaged and give them the opportunity to meet someone and take some actions. So what we've developed, we've developed what we call vision work. And it's a process view of what the young people would actually like their future to look like and actually have a structured collaboration for who we can connect with. Now, while I'm doing this talk, I want you all in the audience to think about how can we bring this conversation and care for the people that we support as our customers? With our young people, the first thing we need to do is figure out what's actually important to them. What do they actually really want to achieve? So I was sitting down in a counseling chair and going, okay, you've got 45 minutes, tell me how you feel, and then I'll see you in another seven days, isn't going to cut it. So how do we do that? We actually get a digital piece of paper, and I'm going to now share you, share with you uh, a couple of real stories. So we write the young person's name in the middle, and we have a conversation, and we say to them, look, we don't mind, we don't even care. We gave you complete permission and you could have absolutely anything. What would be the most important thing to you? And this one kid looks at me and he says, hey, Shane, you know what? Out of everything, 
dude, I would love to become a car salesman. And we said, out of everything, what is it about the car salesman that's so important to you? And he goes, dude, I just want to know what it's like to wear a suit. And so we look at the word suit and we said, what is it about the suit? He goes, man, I've never seen my parents dress nice. And I really just want to know what it's like to be powerful. Now, we go through a range of different questions to really get an understanding of what's important to this young person. Now, you don't have to be a psychologist or a counsellor or a youth worker to get that what's important to this kid has got nothing to do with car salesmen at all. Once we look at every single area of this young person's vision, we end up saying, wow, this is exactly what you want your future to look like. And then this happens to the screen. So like Shane, yeah, that's exactly what I want. I want to be able to have that dream job. And then it ends up blurring out. What we end up calling is a little bit of bullshit. And we want to find out what is it that you definitely, definitely do not want your future to look like. And so we start highlighting what are some of the things that are going to stop you from fulfilling on your positive-based future. And we ask questions like, how do you win an argument? What's going to stop you from taking any actions? And what's that one thing that really scares you? So I guess as a performer, what we've been able to identify is really how to get into a young person's world from what they want their future to look like, but also what they definitely do not want their future to look like. And then at the end of it, create an absolute visual and have a look at what that future actually looks like to them. Now, we can sit and do therapy all day. However, you know, that first bit I spoke about, none of you actually really, really kind of listening to what I'm saying. Imagine what a young person thinking. What are they really listening to after a therapy session? So what we tried out was, what if we actually connected with Toyota and asked the car salesman if that would help us out with the case? And we told the young person, look, we've got Toyota and they want to have a conversation with you. And Toyota said, Shane, look, we'd love to help. What do you need? And I said, give us your car yard. Let us sit down and do some therapy. And then give me one of your car salesmen and you better be wearing a bloody suit. Now, fast forward, young person to meet the car salesman and they have this conversation. Now, as a lot of you already know, the hardest thing to ask for when you're in the world of despair is help. So this young person has a conversation with the car salesman and he says, um, the car salesman answered one of his questions. And he said, look, mate, for me to make money, I need to learn how to get along with people. And that was it. Went over the top of my head. We get back in the car. And the kid gets in the car and he goes, hey, Shane, um, can you teach me how to get along with people? And I thought to myself, out of everyone, your youth worker, your psychologist, your counsellor, your psychiatrist, your footy coach, even your parents, out of everyone, you listen to the dodgy car salesman. And I thought to myself, out of everyone, what is it about him that he had listened to? Now, what we've discovered is the car salesman was the one wearing the suit. He was the one where he wanted to be. But out of everyone, he, everyone cared the exact same, but the young person experienced that the car salesman cared more because he understood his story. And that made the biggest difference to that kid. My name is Trisha Tyler. I've been studying influence ecology since 2012. Hard to believe it's been that long. 
I, I completed FOT 18, I've completed MAP, and I'm on course to complete MAP 2 by the end of this year. So I've been studying and applying uh, transactional competence and philosophy for quite some time. I also serve on the Institute for Transactional Philosophy. I serve on the board, have an officer position there, and also have just recently taken on the responsibility of leading our external affairs committee. Um, but in my day job, the, the way in which I earn my money, so to speak, is I am a leader of a $250 million business and a partner of a global consulting firm. That we work with 88% of the Fortune 500. The primary areas of work we do are in HR consulting and healthcare purchasing. We are a global organization, but my purview is specifically in the US and in the West geography of the US. Uh, in that accountability, I have probably around 400 people who report into me, 300 directly, another probably 150 who kind of roll up into which I'm accountable for the results. I, I do identify as a highly trained performer, and by highly trained, all I mean, and I think many of us are in this ecology, sometimes I look, I, I show up like a judge, sometimes I show up like a producer, sometimes I put my best inventor hat on, and I just think that's what it means to be, um, to, to be highly trained altogether. And the thing I want to point to in terms of a context here for all of us is, for those who know me, I'm a lifelong adventurer. I've got pictures up here, you know, uh, that portray many of these adventures. But it really is at the heart of our topic today, because what I want to be clear about is what we're talking about in terms of empathy and care is it's not woo-woo. <laughs> it, it is. It can be quite loving. It can be quite warm. It can be a lot of things. But I would say, especially when you are out to get the performance out of people, businesses, teams, you name it, which I am, that is very much what I have to be accountable for in leading an accountability the size I have. Uh, and as I'm sure you all feel that same way, we're all ambitious in meeting our aims. So, so why does care and empathy show up? Why, why prioritize it? And, and furthermore, just know what stops us from prioritizing it. And that gets to the heart of the adventure because Take something to actually demonstrate care and empathy in your transactions. So it's important to know what you're out, what what you want to, what do you what you are working towards, the aims you're working towards in doing that, and why you would do it. And so that's part of what we're going to talk about today. I want to reflect on what some of the signs that you may that you see that you may be experiencing a breakdown in trust, care, and or empathy. And by the way, I use my own situations and they own, you know, my own leadership as examples of some of this too. So feel free to lean in and find yourself in any one of these that may make sense. First, clients say yes to becoming a client, but then they don't accept your assertions or recommendations. Your employees do what you ask them to, but you are thinking, don't they have more ambition or is this the best they could do? Despite the brilliance of your idea or your offer, you can't, see, you can't seem to get customers and perhaps even team members on board. Somebody was mentioning that in one of the discussions earlier today. Seems like there's a lot of high cost in dealing with people despite your best use of compliance tactics. You've been thinking about how people just don't get it and that people generally are idiots, buffoons, traitors, or stupid. So if any of these might have caught you in a moment, there's a chance that you probably could have put some, you could put some of what we're going to talk about next into action. So don't panic. This is what we're here to talk about today. 
first of all of us, it's extra being it's being able to notice it and figure out what to do next. So how to demonstrate care and empathy with a customer or a vendor with whom you contract. I broke this up into a couple of pieces, um, mainly because I think there are people, and, and, and what I'm gonna present on the next two slides could apply to all of the above. And you can also apply some of this to your family as well. So I really left this as kind of a professional place, but I, I, you'll see some of this that can apply in certainly other conditions of life. First thing about demonstrating care and empathy is just being curious about what matters to them and the concerns they have both professionally and personally. Oftentimes when I'm talking through a pursuit um, plan for a prospective client to become a client of Mercer's, I'll ask them, I say, why would this person want to hire us? What's the win for them? Not just what's the win, but what matters to them? Like why, why would they go through all the, I, mean, I have to tell you, it takes a lot to move organizations to make changes. Those of you who work in organizations, you know, you know, in larger organizations, you know what I'm talking about. So they're really putting something at stake in their company to do this. So either they've got a really significant, they've got some breakdown somewhere. We need to understand that both on the personal and the professional level. And if you don't understand that, you're really missing some key information to know what they're counting on you for. People often won't give you the real story until about the third time you ask them. Any of you who know kind of the concept of peeling the onion, uh, it's absolutely the case. And it's even with people who know you care about them. Um, but definitely when people don't know that you might care about them, it will just take them a moment to orient themselves in that conversation to go, oh, you, you mean you actually care about what my experience is or you actually care about you know, this thing or whatever. I mean, because they don't know that it's worth actually telling you what the real deal is. And so rather than think that people are just tough nuts to crack, it's, uh, it's valuable to understand that that's how we respond. And often that's how we even respond in our own marriages or with our closest relationships too. We don't know that that's, that we're really going to be delving into what's going on for somebody. It doesn't mean somebody has to tell you their life story. It just, you're looking for what really matters to them. The, um, especially for many very, very smart people in the psychology. And when you're very smart, especially you have a lot of uh, experience with, with humans, I think you know exactly what's about to be said and you know come out of someone's mouth. When you think like that and when that's going on, I assure you, already without saying a word, you've already cut short everything you could possibly get out of that person. So. This is just to say, listen, and allow them to really give you what you're looking for. Present, distractions, what someone's gonna share if it really is something that's valuable. It's making sure you're present and you're actually really listening for what's said and not said. So not multitasking as we all know is, we actually are equipped to do, our brains are not any good at it. So. And let them know your ethics. So sometimes it's really appropriate to let them know your ethics about how you transact and how that holds their concerns is important. For me, this is important as a business leader. And I'll talk through some of the more of the things related to employees in particular. Really important to note, and I think this would have been valuable in any presentation before now, but it's incredibly important for you to understand now. If the person comes from a background that is not well represented in your personal network, versa so they come from a different racial ethnic or different or they might be it could be gender or it could be religion or it could be lgbtq they could, it, there's a whole world of different ways places we come from 
Um, just consider that each of you likely have some implicit bias. Bias is not bad. Undetected bias is what gets us in trouble, right? We all have a bias of some sort. We grew up in environments and we have to be able to account for that. So it's just important to know that there could there, there can definitely be some implicit bias at work and that there's more listening and inquiry needed to trust in those in those situations. You can absolutely grow it, but that's just being mindful of that's really helpful. Performers want to be part of a story that inspires them. They want to build relationships with others where there's a promise or offer or possibility of freedom. Hello, I'm Ross Clennett, deemed alumni and member of Influence Ecology faculty. I identify as a performer personality. I've made a very good living from the assets of my personality. I've made my living from the recruitment industry for over 30 years. Firstly, as an employee agency recruiter, and now as a self-employed coach and trainer for the recruitment industry. Let me go back to the very early days of my adult life, my corporate life. I'd been recruited at the age of 24 to what was ultimately my employment of longest tenure and greatest success. Over the following 10 years with that employer, I built and leveraged many important internal and commercial relationships using a performer's primary asset relationship. My impressive career progression, seniority and earnings were the easily recognised benchmarks of my hard work, competence and success. However, there was another critical component to my success that although I recognised it, I failed to appreciate its true value. I failed to understand how structure had been a major component of my success. The structure that I benefited from was one that I now know to be present in all successful enterprise cultures. After 15 years of working hard and very successfully as an employee, I'd accumulated the evidence that I was good, very good even, at sales. I felt confident I could and would make it on my own. I took the step into self-employment from the relative safety of the corporate world. I purchased a master franchise that promised me the opportunity to be my own boss and the freedom to work my own hours. When I heard the pitch for this master franchise, all I heard was freedom. Freedom to be my own boss, the freedom to build a business from the foundation of another allegedly successful business. With the benefit of this education, it's easy to see why the franchise was a dud. It wasn't transactionally sound. It wasn't customer intimate, it wasn't a product leader, and it wasn't operationally excellent. My due diligence was inadequate, coloured by my overwhelming desire to escape the corporate hamster wheel. 
The allure of freedom for this performer crowded out the important, accurate thinking I should have undertaken. Again, with the benefit of this education, I understand where the franchise lacked the structure of a type that had helped me become a successful employee. As an employee, I had structure and I thought I had a little freedom. Being self-employed, I had all the freedom I thought I wanted, yet without the necessary structure, it turned out I had no freedom at all. Ultimately, it was a facade of freedom. Freedom in the way it is understood in the current may feel good and may even produce some desired results, but that's not the same thing as freedom provided by having a surplus of resources, especially money. The necessary structure that was the underestimated, the unrecognised piece of the puzzle in my employee success contained two critical components. Firstly, aligned expectations with respect to my behaviour as a team member, the activities that I was responsible for doing, and the results that I was accountable for delivering. And secondly, the accountability, feedback and coaching that I was to receive from my manager. This structure was transactionally sound. The domains of transaction, planning, strategy, tactics and implementation were each present. When I was a successful employee, I was trained how to move at each stage. I followed this training. I did the work required. The rewards followed. It seems hard to reconcile how structure would work for a performer. And it doesn't work very well if you consider structure in the context of the current. In the current, structure is generally seen as prescriptive and restrictive. It doesn't have to be this way. And I would go so far as to say that it shouldn't be this way if you want to get the best out of your performer or a performer wants to accomplish something significant for themselves. The type of structure that maximises the likelihood the performers do their best work is found in first providing an empowering narrative or context. The more time spent on clearly communicating or creating the context of the condition of life to be worked on or the work to be done, the fewer the necessary rules, policies and approvals. When a performer is provided with clear context, they have the foundation to make generally great decisions, deliver excellent work and achieve desired outcomes. I love all these conversations around personality types. And I've been thinking to myself, and I'm going to ask you the same rhetorical question, like, do you ever notice yourself doing things that prove your personality type? I know I am a performer through and through, just high level. If I'm left to my own devices, I will be all about having a good time in the moment, making sure everyone else is. And I'm honored today to talk to you about freedom. 
See, I've known that freedom is important to me long before I knew it was supposed to be important to me as a performer. Early in my career, all I needed to be happy was some gas money for my truck and a little extra to buy some IPAs. And I didn't have the distinction of language for it then, but I can realize now that I just didn't want to impinge my day-to-day -day freedom enough to do the work to produce any results over and above that level that I was producing at. And then I met my wife, Danielle, and everything changed. Now, this is not the story that you might have heard before. Uh, she didn't say, oh, well, you know, you better shape up and start getting your rear and gear. I'm, I'm out of here. It, it was all me. I realized after I met her that there's different kinds of freedoms. And I wanted the kind of freedom that took some work and commitment to create because I was going to need more than gas money and IPAs for us to be satisfied. Got to go back to that same phrase, know thy aims. And I did change it up a little bit here, put in some old timey language because you know it feels like a commandment read from the King James Bible. It just feels more weighty. And it's important that we think of this as a commandment because freedom isn't free. If we're going to have the freedom to move towards our aims, we need to know our aims. And, you know, we hear the phrase freedom isn't free in the States, especially a lot around 4th of July, but we don't talk about what freedom is, just what it isn't. So if freedom isn't free, what is it? Well, the marketplace. See, we're always trading one freedom for another. And know that aims helps us know what to pursue and what to trade. Because more freedom in one area will always mean less freedom somewhere else. You can go throw off your clothes and run naked through the street tomorrow. Be a free spirit all you want. Enjoy it. Don't be surprised if a whole world of transactions are no longer available to you. So yeah, MJ lost freedoms for every one that he gained. The Last Dance talks about him being holed up in his hotel, unable to go anywhere because of the crowds of people surrounding him outside, wanting to get a piece of the greatness. And even though it might be at a different level of context, we have the same choices to make. So whenever I hear anyone make this kind of... Uh, what to do informational kind of talk right about now i'm always wondering okay great so what do i do next give me something to do my general advice is to look for ways to build structures and commitments so you can watch your freedom grow on those structures for you that could look like a lot of things and we might need to talk after with some questions or later in the conference which i'm willing to do with anyone but i'll give you a few general examples to give you directionally in the right in the right place. First, build your team. Like we said with Jordan and Pax, you can win bigger and work less, and you don't have to grow your payroll necessarily while you're doing it. Two, use your calendar. Calendar is a structure that we all already have built, and we can add more detail and more features to it to great advantage. And I've learned much of what I know about using my calendar effectively from hearing John Patterson speak in FOT way back in 2017. 
and now on into the into the future. So here's a couple of examples. I have a monthly budget versus actual appointment with myself. This is about an hour that I set aside once a month, and it doesn't always take me an hour, but I do nothing more than simply look at all the cash that has come in and all the cash that has flown out. And, and I do want to see that there's a continuing gap between that those two numbers to the positive. And also, I want to do a review of just the different transactions that I've engaged in to see if those are actually supporting the aims that I have and the kind of life that I want. Second is, is activity. So I have a weekly goals versus results appointment with myself on the calendar. For Friday mornings, when my head is clear and I feel a little optimistic about life going into the weekend. And all I'm looking at is what are some of my most important aims and how am I doing? And it doesn't have to be that much more detailed than that. And the key for me is if something is that important to me, then I don't think that a whole week should go by that I don't at least think about it for a few minutes. And the theme here is short-term restriction creates long-term freedom. See, I make the choice once in my calendar. And then the calendar continues to make that choice for me on into the future, giving my brain more space to work on other things. And yes, over the short term, I've limited some of my freedom in how I'm going to live my life. But here's another trick for all you performers out there. And this does come from the strategies of the great John Patterson. Phrase all of your calendar entries in light of the freedom that doing that thing is going to give you. See, I used to resist even making a regular appointment to work out until I started writing into my calendar, enjoy your freedom to move. Because <laughs> as I get older, and yes, my body is older than this face looks, I notice that my freedom of movement in my body is a scarce and quickly diminishing resource. So I want to enjoy the freedom to use it as much as I can. The one final trip back to this phrase to finish us out today, and I hope it's the last time I, I say to you, know thy aims. It really is the magic key to everything. My special thanks to all of the subject matter experts who spoke at the recent mid-year conference. It was enlightening to hear from some of the best and brightest minds in our ecology. And in our show notes, you'll find links to connect with all the speakers mentioned in this podcast. The Influence Ecology podcast is produced by Influence Ecology, LLC, in Ventura, California. This episode was produced by Tyson Crandall and me, John Patterson. You can find a transcript for this and other episodes at InfluenceEcology.com. This episode is made possible through the assistance of the Influence Ecology faculty, staff, mentors, and students around the world. Co-founder Kirkland Tibbles and our colleagues comprise an international collective of professionals who are active in the development of the philosophy of transactionalism and the discipline of transactional competence. Kirkland is considered a leading philosopher and authority in the field and has authored more than 500 papers on the subject, study, and discipline. The podcast theme is by Chris Standring and titled Fast Train to Everywhere. You can subscribe to the Influence Ecology podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at influenceecology.com. If you haven't yet offered a rating or review, I ask that you take a moment, go to iTunes or your podcast app, and let us know what you think. This helps us more than you know.